Welcome to Lonely Cello. This episode is brought to you by the Cello Sherpa podcast. You don't need to be a cellist or even a musician to get something out of the Cello Sherpa podcast. Atlanta Symphony Orchestra cellist Joel Dallow interviews top shelf musicians like Yo-Yo Ma and addresses many interesting topics like how to manage performance anxiety, how to protect and fuel your body for optimal performance, teaching and practicing techniques, a maestro's role in a symphony, fascinating behind-the-scenes peek into how a symphony operates, and much, much more. The Cello Sherpa podcast comes out bi-weekly on Friday and can be found on every popular podcast platform. For more information on Joel Dallow's teaching, excerpt coaching, and other services, check out thecellosherpa.com. Welcome to Lonely Cello. I am your host, Emily Wright, and today I am here with... John Hannafin. That's the guy right there. Who are you? Where are you from? What are you um, doing? I am a cellist and music producer out of Massachusetts. Currently, Massachusetts son, born there? I am. I am born. I'm actually born three streets away from Johnny Appleseed's house. You know, I didn't want to mention the family resemblance, but now that I look at you, <laughs> that's super cool. Um, so I guess the first thing I like to ask is just sort of about your general musical journey, because so many listeners are um, at varying stages of their musical journey. So kind of what was your entry point? Did you start on the cello or did you start on piano? Kind of how did it all begin? Well, I love what you said about varying entry points, because I think that all of us on a daily basis hit a varying entry point. You know, all the projects we get, we're starting from scratch and I've never once hit a project that I have to play on or record on where I'm not trying something new and starting completely from scratch. Oh, for you know? sure. And uh, I think that for me, it was Disney. Disney brought me into music. It was Recorder. I think Recorder was introduced to me in like third grade or maybe second grade. And I was always humming to Disney tunes. And then uh, the, the major flip in my life was Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. Michael Jackson, I realized that I wanted to do music. Later, I come to find out that it was Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones, but Michael can take the credit. He was up there dancing, so. Yeah, absolutely. Michael was the entertainment, and I feel like Quincy Jones was the music yeah. for a lot of that, especially the, um, like, the the Thriller album, right? There's just, like, so many new sounds in that. Also, th they did use strings. Like, that was some of the first, like, post-disco string stuff that I feel like I... I had heard. Um, so oh, did you start on cello? Uh, or I mean, I knew you had recorder, but like when you decided to play capital M music. Yeah, well, I'm mean, capital M. <laughs> the best thing is that I was fortunate enough to be in a town that offered strings, you know, mm -hmm. in school. And they said violin, viola, cello. I looked at the violin and thought, no way. I looked at the bass. I couldn't carry that on my bike. <laughs> Saw the cello and I thought, you know, I bet you my mom could handle taking that to school if I wanted to ride. You know, and uh, that kind of started my journey. And luckily, uh, I had a neighbor who sits on the board at the Springfield Symphony, and he's also a violinist in the Pioneer Valley Symphony. And he introduced me to my first cello teacher who actually fired me on three different occasions because I would not practice. But he stuck with me until I was able to get into a conservatory, which was um not can I ask actually, cause I was a, I loved playing, but I didn't practice very well. Part of it was like, I didn't know how, right. But um, do you remember what it was that you resisted about practicing? Cause you, you loved the instrument. Was it just like, Oh, I don't want to do scales. Yeah. Well, it was just, I lacked complete foresight for anything ahead of that day, you know? And it's funny cause I, I, I would love, to get that mentality back where you just live in the day and you don't look towards the future, you know, cause now all I'm doing is I'm, I'm always looking ahead and I'm not really looking at all at today, but I'm trying, I mean, I'm still, I'm still learning. But during that time, I didn't understand the point of scales and arpeggios. I just thought 
I could rely on talent and I would learn concertos by ears and I would rip them. And then, you know, I, I could get away with it until I couldn't. <laughs> and then it's a brick wall. That's, yeah. that is exactly my, um, my trajectory as well. And I want actually listeners to really to hear that because talent can actually be a bit of a curse because you get so used to surfing on these waves that you're creating that when it comes down to things that you have no natural proclivity for, the people who've learned to do the work will just, it's the tortoise and the hare and the tortoise, you will just see him going further and further ahead of you because they know how to work. And I certainly did not know how to work until probably my sophomore year of college. And then it sort of, I watched, I basically, my teachers were trying, but mostly I saw the other people who I was playing with. And I, I said, my, my process looks nothing like this. Yeah. Right. I was, I would show up and they'd already been practicing and then I would leave to go do something else, mostly just jobs. Actually, I was working in college and I'm like, those people are still in the practice room. Yeah. That's why I'm looking at the back of their head in the section. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. I like that tortoise in the hair though. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're, good, you're a good sprinter, but you can't run the marathon. <laughs> yeah. I was definitely not a marathoner. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think if we continued the metaphor, maybe I'd be on a razor scooter now. I have no idea actually what my, <laughs> what that would be. Um, maybe the tortoise and I are carpooling. I don't know. Um, so um, was there a moment that you can recall um, when you knew that you were going to get kind of serious about this, right? There's kind of a tipping point where we go from like, yeah, you know what? I'm probably one of the better people in my neighborhood to being like, I want to, I really want to do this. Yeah, I mean, it was hard because in school I had a band <laughs> who didn't, but uh, we we were doing we were doing pretty well, and I was also doing a lot of singing because there were some elite choirs within the high school, and then I was also doing orchestra. But it was funny because when you're in a choral setting, there's more time to kind of hang with people and to talk. It's not as stringent as an orchestral rehearsal where you just need to sit there and shut your mouth and then, you know, wait for the stick. And I was always kind of attracted more to that. And I thought originally it was because I was attracted more to choral music. It wasn't. I was more attracted to the environment. To the vibe. Yeah. It was just more fun for me. Uh, and it wasn't until I got into conservatory. I remember one lesson specifically because my, my drive, my drug is learning. Mm. I love to learn. If I can't learn from you, I don't want to be around because, right. you know, like, especially if I'm paying, if I'm paying someone to learn from them and I feel like I can't learn anything from them, I get, I get pretty sad inside, you know? So I had one lesson one night with Andy Mark, who's the head of the string department over to Boston Conservatory. And he came into my practice room and we worked on the opening, the exposition of the hide and seek other concerto. Mm. It was the first time bow distribution was brought to my attention, but also made sense to me. And then also bow distribution with a proper shifting. And after that, I realized I've actually never played the cello. You know, I've never actually practiced. And it was this almost like massive cauldron where I was trying to now see where I could find the door and get into it, you know? And that kind of started the drug in a sense to get better. You know, and then, of course, I was introduced to things like Popper and Sevchek. But for me, it was never about the notes on the page. It was always about the process. You know, like, how can I get from this to this without destroying my body? You know, and then I realized the big part is that there's a massive difference between practicing and playing. Boom. You know, a lot of people, when they practice, they're just playing. They're not actually sitting down with a systematic approach to accomplish something, even if it's three measures. You nail those three measures, you never have to practice them again. Then you can turn on Adele and jam with her. That's fine. But don't take out a concerto and play through it seven times expecting it to get better. You know, and that's what I did for a lot of years until that one lesson where I went, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing. None. Yeah. Um, and actually, so again, for, for students listening to this, 
um, this is this is the main point of the the way I teach, and I think a lot of newer teachers are making making sure this comes through. Is that not only is it super important to pay attention to the quality of what you're doing on the instrument, and I told a student I think yesterday or the day before. Every single note you play, you have to defend like a dissertation. Why is your bow there? What is that speed about? What reason is that for? And at first it seems like this giant checklist of things that you can never keep you know, track of, but what it ends up being, because like John and I are fun people. Like we, we do not like dry, awful, boring practice and playing. It's actually like this elixir to get into the actual stuff of skill where every single repetition, if you do it right, you can feel it improving. You're like your whole approach to the instrument, the way you physically touch the instrument. Um, and it actually is more fun, I think, to practice and be in that zone than to just do what I call brute force, right? Where just like, you might get better if you repeat the concerto seven times, yeah. But it's it's like you kind of are getting a bird's eye view of it as opposed to like really experiencing the notes. So, yeah. yeah. What I, I always tell students that when when you practice and you practice the right way, that's your direction. When you play that same passage, that's your compensation. Right. After that, what you want to do is you want to try to figure out kind of what can go wrong, what can go right, but never try to get it right figure out what your body's going to do, right? If you have a big shift in front of you, go for it. And then see what your arm did. See where you squeeze, see where your thumb is. If you have equal half steps, like what's going on. If you try to practice and get it right, you'll never get there because you're always holding back. Right. You just go for it. And then once you go for it, then you start to hone it in. Then when you play, your compensation is, if you're in the wrong part of the bow, that allows you the time to figure out how to get out of it, right? Because we're only human. I mean, we're not not many of us are going to play like hyphens, you know, where everything is just perfect, you know. So we have to kind of figure out like where we're going to hit that patch of ice, you know. If our bow is in the wrong place, we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's absolutely right. Yeah, practice is actually exploration of the things that you're not doing right, and we yeah. should look for those things. Find them. It's don't avoid them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, a great lesson is when I get to say to a student, you're wrong a lot because now we have a lot to fix, you know, and we can't fix things unless they do the work to get to the problem, you know, and that's yeah. what I always find the most fun is it's like, no, here's why, you know, and then all of a sudden you just see the student like blossom, you know. Yeah, because and it's exciting. It's exciting to do that yourself. Like, I don't know about you, but. I've had one cello lesson in like the past 20 years, right? Because I've been like busy professionaling. Um, but it was so exciting to have this one lesson where like a whole bunch of things I was not doing very well were brought to my attention because then it's like, oh, now I can get to work, right? You just, right? And being unafraid of, of seeing that, it's um, that might be the most uh, important quality to have as a student, just kind of not flinching in the face of something that you're not doing well, because of course we all, we all have those things without exception. Yeah. And also get dumb. The dumber you are, the smarter you act, you know, <laughs> it's true. Approaching things, having read treatises from the 17th century on trills, you're so far in your head, your body's not moving. You know, I mean, the more, it will, at least for me, the more advanced you get, the dumber you have to think. And you have to, I always call it Suzuki one, go back to Suzuki one. Where's your arm? Where's your wrist? Where's your bow? You know, that's all I'm thinking about. When people see me up there shredding, I'm thinking, where's my arm? Where's my wrist? Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> guys, uh, that's actually not John. That was Kermit the frog. I just see him here on, on camera. <laughs> Well, I'm not thinking about the intricacies of what I'm doing, because if you think about the intricacies, I mean, you get completely lost. I just think about, you know, like the road in front of me. That's it. When you're driving a car, you're not thinking about each individual piston firing. You know, you're just looking at the road. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I call that the brain kind of tries to run interference, right? And you can see students getting in their own way. But also, I think a lot of us recognize it because most people who are really earnest about what they're doing, we get there at some point, right? We we all kind of spiral and get too far into our own heads. But um, I always joke, I'm like, have you have you met professional musicians? Like, not all of them, but like a lot of those folks don't don't have a whole lot of like treatise going on in their mind and that empty space is actually where art can live <laughs> like it's it's there it's a much simpler place to be and i say that tongue in cheek of course but it's like yeah um you're not going to think your way into being somebody who can do something physically it's you're, we're training our body you have to you have to get the body moving and get your brain out of the way 100% absolutely so you know, when I first encountered your playing, I think it was just a couple of years ago, I think um, I think it was playing something. I think you might have been singing probably, or maybe I was looking for people chopping or alternate like bow techniques and things. Um, when did you branch out from um, kind of, you know, our standard classical path? You said that you had a band in high school. Were you playing cello or were you doing like guitar or bass or something else? Actually, you know, I wasn't doing any cello with that. I was doing guitar and bass mm -hmm. and a lot of the chop stuff I do on the bow uh, comes from bass slap. Yep. You know, it's really cool. Well, I spent, I after one of the Bela Fleck concerts, I spent some time with Victor Wooten and we just sat there for a little bit and he was like, do that again. And I was like, do that again, you know? <laughs> you know? And uh, <laughs> it's like, bro, I don't have anything to offer you. But there's two things. One, it was the chop that I do was the thing that he was really into. Two, this is Victor Wooten. This is the best bass player in the world. You know, there's like him and Pistario. Those are like the top notch cats. And he was 100% into what this 15 year old kid was doing. No ego, just exploration. What was that? You know, and that's the coolest thing to me is that he didn't care. I was a novice player that did one thing cool. He just cared about that one thing. You know, and then eventually after the big time conservatory, classical, all the repertoire, all the con like seven concerts a week, that type of thing, I started to just see if I wanted to kind of branch out a little bit. And um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the classical rep. Most of the concerts I do, like whether I'm out in Montana or I'll be over in Turkey, that's a lot of classical stuff. But now during those tours, people are asking me to come in and do the modern stuff too. So you get the best of both worlds. You know, um, and I play what the composers wrote because have you ever actually taken a quill to paper? It takes a while. When they put an eighth note rest, that took 10 seconds out of their life. Respect that eighth note rest. <laughs> <You know>? Absolutely, exactly. <laughs> I always say like, if they wanted that note longer, they would have told you. <laughs> Play the rest. 100%. Um, so, um, you know, I'm thinking back to sort of like your formative education. Um, like, what are some of the lessons uh, from Berkeley that you kind of still draw from? Like, I, I remember things that certain teachers said to me throughout the years. Like, the number one thing that I always think about was when I was in a sectional and John Waltz said, no, no, no just because we're playing piano, the left hand still has to play forte, right? Don't let your left hand get mushy when you're playing something that's like sensitive and dolce legato. So are there, you know, we're, we're kind of nerding out here, but we have so many students listening. Um, what are some of the lessons that you kind of continuously draw from during, from that formative period? I would say there's four. Rhonda Ryder um, at Boston Conservatory, when she played, I can't remember the piece, but I watched her shift and it was like watching the stone figures from Lord of the Rings. It was mm -hmm. just the heaviest shift I've ever seen with the lightest touch. And I didn't know how she did that. And that was one of those things where I was like, I have to figure that out. Andy Mark was the lesson that I mentioned before. Honor Bilsma, we had this big conversation about the third finger because I had rented him a concert hall because we were going to have this lesson. He might have invited me to Amsterdam to study with him, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. 
why did you get a concert hall? That's stupid. Come to my hotel. And I was like, okay, well, so we went there and it was an incredible lesson because I played for him and then he was, he just talked about Bach, you know, and what Bach meant to him and how his interpretation is different than other people's interpretation. And he doesn't need to alienate anyone else's interpretation because his is his own. Right. And I thought that that was incredible. And then with Mihail Zizatu, who I received my master's with, his big thing was, please, God, for all that is holy, stop Portado. <laughs> no, no Bovibrato. No, none at all. And it's funny because you don't realize you're doing that until you listen to yourself and then you realize everything is Portado. You're and hearing then- wah, wah, wah. It's just the tackiest way of playing. I mean, it's it's stunning when it's brought to a piece the right way. But when it's on everything, it just makes me now so seasick. You know, it's just the worst. And I didn't even know. You know, I had no idea. He came, he got me, he brought me, you know, everything is paid for, blah, blah, blah. I sit there and he's like, you are such a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, I, I honestly had no idea. And that's the problem with not actually being honest with yourself. You're not listening. You know, if you want to play, enjoy your playing. If you want to practice, figure out where you are, not necessarily where you want to be. You got to figure out exactly where you are. That's where you work. Where you want to go is how you can approach it for sure. But like, you have to be honest with where you're at. You know, that's why when I was in school, my friends would call me the mad scientist. Hmm. They would walk by a practice room and it was not pretty. <laughs> I was ripping things apart, you know, but those I would say that those were the, the big ones that, you know, and Paul Katz had some interesting stuff to say as well about Dvorak concerto up high. It was his vibrato. He does the circular vibrato. And that was something I've never really been able to hang with. But there's been times where it comes into my playing without me knowing, and it gave me exactly what I needed, if that makes any sense. You know, it's like, it's not something that I necessarily worked on, but it's definitely something that because I worked on it, it benefited me greatly when I needed it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's another thing for students who are sort of um, either struggling or sometimes they either change teachers or they go to a summer program or something and somebody introduces them to an idea that seems, you know, either counter to what they've been taught or very foreign. And I always say, and this is even to my students. So if I say, this is the way your arm should be. And then they go take a lesson from someone. They're like, your arm should be totally different. Try both of them 100%, right? Because bodies are different, styles are different, and maybe your answer is somewhere between the two of them. But also you don't have to master a skill in order for even the learning of it to benefit you. Yeah. Right? So like, just just give it a go. It's, it's so funny because what we do requires discipline, but I don't think that being too serious about it benefits anybody. No. And also, I mean, it's the, the minute details are what we work on all the time and we forget bigger picture. It's the bigger muscle groups that will always hold you back. Yep. You're in a big passage and you're in a ton of thumb position and you're doing extended fours and things like that. Look at your elbow. Yeah. <laughs> elbow. You know, if your arm feels like it's on fire, it's cause it is. You know, there's not this like magical wand that you just swish through the air and all of a sudden now you can play like the greats. It's, I mean, you have to be honest with yourself and really listen to your body, you know, because I've looked at myself in the mirror before and I look like something out of Harry Potter. And it's like, well, that's not right. (laughs) I should, I shouldn't look like that. I didn't even know my body could do that. I'm not a flexible book. It's like, how is my shoulder up there? And it's like that. That's why I always tell people go back to the Suzuki one style of thinking, you know, not the book, but I'm just like of thinking, go to the basics, you know, don't get caught up with what you're doing within a passage. If your arm is down and it's against your arm or if your shoulders up, you're already handicapping yourself. Right. You can't progress if you're already hurting the passage. Uh, Speaking of Harry Potter, have you been sorted into a house? Have you taken the quiz? No. Hmm. I mean, I you've got, you've got it. Gryffindor energy, but also, 
I don't know. You're unassuming. You could be a Hufflepuff. You're not, you're not a Ravenclaw, but anyway, um, uh, listeners, if he does get sorted, I will absolutely uh, give you an update. This is very pertinent information. Everybody wants to know. Um, <laughs> but by the way, the quizzes, the questions are amazing. You can always tell like what you're going to be sorted into. It's like, what do you like to do on the weekend? Read, um, study, fly on my broom, murder. You're like, ah, a murder. Okay. So that's going to be the Slytherin. Okay. Got it. It's so stupid. Um, so let's, um, change direction just a little tiny bit, uh, more into the present day. Um, you teased in the email that I got last night saying that you've got some pretty mega collaborations, um, coming up. Can you tell me a little bit about that and like the process of collaboration, all that good stuff? Oh yeah, so I um <clears throat> I haven't really been doing so I did I did one really fun collaboration with D Sharp, who's a very big violin player. He's out on the West Coast and um you know what's what's kind of cool about having somewhat of a little bit of a social following and some respect from you know other players is you can kind of hit people up and say, Hey, you want to do this? And sometimes they say no, and sometimes they're like, Never thought I'd hear from you. You know, and <laughs> I hit him up and I said do you want to do this thing? And he said, sure. And so I sent him an idea and then he sent me back an idea. And then I sent him like a track and he was like, Oh, you, you actually produce, you know? <laughs> and he was kind of shocked and that's the fun thing. And then now I would consider him one of my best friends. You know, we shot that video out in Vegas. I'm going to fly out to LA in a few weeks to see him and we're going to be doing another track. And then I was reached out to by this band in Brazil, hmm. a very, very big group. And they had me, work on their record they're shooting a uh, a big dvd at some opera house down there and then their producer and guitarist andreo uh reached out to me and it's it's kind of funny because i think the one thing that students have to understand is you don't necessarily have to know where a project's going you just should do the project if you want to do the project if you get excited about working with someone even if they're a pain in the ass to work with it's worth it because there's someone that you heard of so if there's someone you've heard of, they're doing something right. If you get the opportunity to work with them, then do it. You know, don't worry if it doesn't get a Grammy. That's fine. That's all political anyways, you know? Yeah. What's kind of fun now is that we've, we've been working together because he was the one that I sent the files to because he's producing the record for them. And then he sent me this other thing specifically for us. And now that's turning into a record that we'll be doing. And then that'll also be turning into you know, like the whole kind of get the agent, get the tour going, I'll fly down to Brazil, we'll shoot for a month and get all the promo material together. And it's like, you never know, you know, like you, and that was happening. That conversation was happening last week when I was demoing a bathroom with my buddy, Chris, you know? So it's like, I'm in the basement plugging up. And meanwhile, I'm talking with him about doing this incredible project with the cello and production and using all the gear that we have and all the toys. And, you know, I got pipes coming down to me that I'm sorry. <laughs> like, you know, I, I just always try to keep things a little bit interesting, you know, because if all you do every day is music, you're not doing yourself any services. You know, I, I think it's important to find something that you can learn that's different, you know, because yeah. then back to music, you approach it differently. Everything that you do, you approach differently if you have something else to change your point of view. Yeah, life life informs art. So it's important to get out there and do some living. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. But yeah, so he's one of them. And then the other is, um, he's this guy, well, Kaddish, and big producer. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. And then there's a couple folks uh, in Istanbul, Turkey. And then there's one guy I can't mention. Ooh. But he's, um, he's pretty big. And that's pretty exciting. You know, because he's what's fun. And I'm sure you get this, too. Sometimes people reach out to you and you see the blue check marks, not when you buy them, but, you know, the, the blue check marks. And you think, oh, well, this this could be something. And sometimes you read the statements or the comments where you're like, this person doesn't care at all. And I got a comment from that guy. And then I went to his page and I went, no, stop it. Right. And then I got the follow and I'm like, stop it. You know, and then I got the DM and then I got the call and it was like, Oh, this is actually happening, you know, and uh, 
yeah, it's kind of fun. So all of these projects too are very, very different music and I'm being brought in for different things on them, which is fun, you know, for me, <clears throat> you know, cause you can't get greedy with creativity. You just, no. you just gotta be full of gratitude that you're able to contribute anything to anything, you know? Absolutely. So like thinking about collaborations, like if the sky's the limit, like who would you work with? Like, I think right now I'm like obsessed with Yeba Smith. Uh, she's just like her. I've never heard a voice like hers ever before. And I love her or like Danny Elfman. And I know it's cliche, but if, if Tom York ever, ever said hi to me, I would probably die. And then that would be my collaboration with him. So like sky's the limit. Like who would you like totally love to work with? Coldplay. Yeah. Coldplay. And then after Coldplay, I would say Muse. Mm. Cause those are people <clears throat> in my mind, they're, they're not afraid to go where you shouldn't go. Mm. You know what I mean? And I think what's nice about those groups too, is they have some producers cause like real, in my opinion, real producers they're they rein it in. You know, that's why I always tell people when I'm working with them, send me everything and I'll rein it in but it's way easier to take away than it is to add to. Mm -hmm. I feel like if I could get into the room with either of those groups, it would be a blast, you know? You know, it's funny. I've been trying to write more music um, and more like pop, like dance, even like electronic music where the cello maybe figures into it, but maybe doesn't actually, right? I just got a bunch of MIDI sounds and, you know, drum programming. Um, for me, I find that the most, the thing that I love the most and get so much inspiration from is either a sick beat yeah, or, um, like novel, interesting chord progressions. And now mm -hmm. I'm starting to hear things like, I mean, like Jacob Collier, huh? it makes me so happy to hear music written, like they're playing chord changes. Do you know what I mean? Like they're constructing music that has like form and that the harmony has like a narrative and it's, it's like extremely rich music that I, I only was getting listening to like jazz or music school musicians. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess um, I didn't prepare you for this question, but let's let her rip anyway. Um, like, where is like the genesis for you? Do you have like a melody in your head? Do you hear a beat? Is it harm harmony? Like if you had to write something from scratch today, um, where would where would you start? Oh, you know, honestly, I don't have one process. Mm -hmm. uh, I love beats. You know, that's part of the reason why I like working with Kaddish is because, you know. Like it's very it's very rare to meet somebody that's world famous because of beats. <laughs> so it's like he knows what he's doing, you know. Yep. And I mean, I I love that. I've always been attracted to that. I do think melodies are incredible. My one handicap though is because of Disney and because of Michael Jackson, I have a hard time with a three note melody for two and a half minutes. You know, so the modern pop music today, where it's huh huh. Right. And that's a Grammy. It's like, what? <laughs> you know, I mean, and I don't get me wrong, I love Billie Eilish. I love Billie Eilish. But Phineas, in my opinion, is like the real master mind behind everything because I mean like her voice is incredible, but it wouldn't fit in the music if he didn't do what he did to it, you know, like with the FX and the VSTs and things like that. And so for me, I, the, and it goes back to practicing. If I want to write something, I have to think dumb. What's cool. I just sit here and I go, what's cool, you know? And I blurt out a bunch of ideas and I'd say 99.999 with that little line over it. Mm -hmm. They suck. And then I'll hit that like zero one percent. And that's what you can build off of. So that track with um, D Sharp Crossroads was the ba da 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 da. 
And I went, how can I do something like that? And then I just started looping the cello and then I created a sick beat. And then after that, I sent it to him and he was like, hey, what do you think about this for the course? And then you just, you charge, you know? But I think a lot of people are afraid to start, that it's not gonna be great. Right, afraid, exactly. Being afraid to start, that's actually the main thing because I think people who are getting into, you know, songwriting, they think that like, in a dream, you have a complete song that comes to you. And although every now and again, I've had something where I'm waking up and like this, this hook from my dream is like fading as I wake up and I'm like desperately trying to scrawl it down. Oh. But, but normally I, it's just like separating the wheat from the chaff. So I have to have some kind of beat to put this thing over. And do you know what? I'm probably going to replace that beat with something else, but let's just, right. And just like cobbling together things that are good enough. And then when they're not good enough, you remove them and replace them with something that might be better. Like, don't be afraid to tinker and for it to be super mediocre for a while. It's better to have something and it's mediocre than to be afraid to start for fear of mediocrity. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And also, I mean, for those of your students and for anyone listening that is getting into production, if you're in the creative process, that's not the production process. There's a huge difference. It's the same thing between practicing and playing. If you're in the creative process, get it down. Just get whatever's in your mind. I mean, pardon my friend, get that shit out. Do it. You know? After that, go to splice, swap out sounds, do whatever you have to do. But like, get the process, get your thing out there. Then you can nitpick and rip it apart. You know. But I'm a, I'm a, I'm a. I mean, I always tell people in the studio, would you just shut up? You know, because you're getting in the way. If you don't have anything to say, then just go away. You know, because right now there's juices flowing, there's things happening, it's like a river, there's a current. For every stupid thing said, <laughs> it's a little piece of a dam that goes up. And we don't have a lot of time when everyone collectively is in the same place. Mm -hmm. Where we have no idea where we are, we have no idea where we're going, but we're really excited about where it's headed. You know, it, I mean, it's an incredible thing when you get a bunch of people into a room full of fog and everyone's excited to run. <laughs> So when you have someone come in and say, oh, well, I think that hi-hat doesn't work. It's like, you need to go back to the parking lot. Because <laughs> we're not there yet. You know, we're just having fun. That's the point. You have fun. If you're not having fun, you're not doing it right. You know, you're miserable in the editing. <laughs> yeah, I, actually, you should have given me some sort of trigger warning. Because I can't tell you how many times we've been like down in the mix and it's what's with that hi-hat? What's the problem with that snare sound? And it's like, <laughs> here we go. Yeah. Yeah. All, the, all the vibes are dead. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's funny. You asked me, there's, um, and this is just because like people are listening, but I, I work with this one guy. I won't mention him by name, but he has, I don't know, like 50, 57 Grammys. And we work together pretty often. He's a very big producer. And anyways, he got a call um, from, oh, no, what's her name? I can't, Emojin Heap, right? And she was asking him about, so Emojin, for those that don't know, she invents like all these instruments, you know, like that vocoder that she came out with for hide and seek, like mm -hmm. she invented that. So then when like Taylor Swift does it 20 years later, people are like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, and then everybody else is doing it as well. It's like she invented that. She is a revolutionary person she's a technologist and yeah she's just there there's only one ever of her she's so great just incredible so this is what's so funny and the reason that i preface this person and like what a big deal he is and you know like he's with the best of the best he's done everything and she called him and asked about this microphone blah 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 and this is what i love about these musicians these legends like way up there is that he said you know I, I would love to work with you sometime and she said that's so nice and then hung up <laughs> you know and she basically said i'm good i'm straight i don't i don't i don't need any assistance you know i don't want anything to kind of block the creativity process but you know he called me and he's like listen to this conversation how funny is that and we both celebrated that you know, like he didn't take offense to it at all. He was just like, that's awesome because I can't remember the last time someone said no in such a nice way, you know, but kind of like, that's so kind, screw, click, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And again, the reason I tell people to reach out to other people is that I've gotten that from different artists before, you know, 
And it's not that I can say not many, but you know, sometimes people it doesn't work with their schedule. Maybe they're booked out with somebody else. They're tour. It's like you can't take offense. You just have to keep going. You know. Yeah, I love that. But now I um I will cross off my list. Uh, solicit collaboration with Imogene Heap. I'm I'm done. She's up. She's good. I will not. I will not bother her. Um. So you just uh came out with an album, Clean House, and. Yeah. Um, I feel, when did you, when did you finish? I finished in the summer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it was kind of fun. Cause when we went over to London to shoot the vids, um, the tracks weren't actually really done yet, but mm -hmm. that was the first time where I could see, you know, because they did, they did like a big production and we rented out like the moth club for one of the videos and they had like 50 extras and it was cool because I would be on stage having like makeup and stuff done and the track would be playing it was the first time i heard my track in like a club pa system you know and that that thumped because stop drop and roll that's that's a crazy beat but then it was awesome to see people like grooving you know because they'd never heard the song no one had heard the song and they were they were loving it and again it, i always tell people this and all my students and everyone else's students like it's okay to feel cool i felt so cool that was awesome you know i'm in england with a bunch of people I don't know, one of the dudes that runs the company, I met when I was in Montana playing for the best ballet dancers in the world. So it was like, why am I even here? And then the second I started them grooving on the dance floor, I was like, that's why I'm here. You know, like it'll never make sense until it makes sense. Yeah. You know, and you said that the tracks weren't um, finished. Um, and I feel like this quote is attributed to Tom York, but um, somebody said, you don't ever really finish a record. You just abandon it. Right. Yeah. Cause it, do you agree with that? Yeah. Well, that was, um, there's an artist, Braxton cook. I don't know mm. if you know him. he's a sax player and, uh, his record is done exceedingly well. He's, you know, amazing instrumentalist. And we came out with a record around the same time. I said to him, like, I'm, I pretty much got to the point where if I tweaked anything else, one, my mix engineer and mastering engineer would never talk to me again. But two, I would destroy the vibe because that's what they were fighting so hard to maintain, you know? And then he said, basically, I'm releasing this because I need to. So neither of us are happy, right? But we're thrilled to get it out. You know, yeah. There's, there's a huge difference. And that's, I mean, for those listening that are into production and stuff like that, I can almost guarantee you 100% of the time, the sound that you love the most, that thing you spent the most time on, no one cares about. <laughs> no one will give a shit about. They just will not care. You know, and that's why it's important for you not to mix your music, <laughs> in my opinion, because then all of a sudden, the last thing people hear is the melody, but the coolest thing is that hi-hat that you threw in that matched the flute that went against that DJ Rick a Rick, you know, <laughs> it's just the track sounds like something that, you know, strolled by on a garbage truck. And it's like, that's not what you wrote. You, in my opinion, it's just, it's just so important to give it to somebody that will serve the song because you created something and you don't necessarily want to raise it. <laughs> you know, you gave birth to it. Now, you know, when you bring your baby to like a photographer for those baby shoots, like they pick outfits and stuff, you know, and they do that because of the lighting, the backdrop, what you're going to do, what you look like. There's all these things that you're not thinking about. You just think your baby, as is, the most beautiful thing in the world. You know, they're saying it is, but you look like crap. So we got to dress this baby to match your mess. You know, <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of where, where I was at. Sorry for the tangent, but. No, that's all right. Uh, I just wish that baby would uh, fix the hi-hat, like, honestly. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I listened um, to Clean House a couple times, um, once actually while I was cleaning the house. So it was like completely appropriate. Um, a lot of these tracks sound deeply personal. So like, without giving away like all of your secrets, sort of what was the genesis of this record? Or are there certain tracks where there's like a, a narrative or a story you'd like to share? It's okay if the answer is no. No, no. I mean, the reason it's out there is because it's out there, you know? Um, Fenway is actually a true story about hmm. a girl. 
and we still talk. Uh, Undo or Undoing is a true story about a girl because I did, I used to have a place in Rome with this mm-hmm. and we still speak, you know, like she, she just had a beautiful boy and we're talking and, you know, like that's totally fine. Uh, Stop, Drop and Roll is, I think, just more generic about how we've all been in very toxic situations and it doesn't necessarily have to be a relationship. It could be like your employer, you know, like where you're doubting your moral integrity and where you stand, that's not good. Unremarkably Remarkable stems back to like, I think in middle school, my vice principal pulled me into the office and told me point blank that music would get me nowhere and I would accomplish nothing. Fabulous. I love it. Oh, yes. <laughs> Great role model. Um, and then one is, you know, within the music community, there's a lot of substance abuse. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of substance abuse pertaining to like power and to greed and to fame and social media. And like for me myself, I'm a sober guy. So I wanted to write a track that really just spoke to what it is to know when you're serving something else, you know, when you're a slave to something. And a lot of people for me right now, the way I feel is like social media, you know, on my phone, social media, I have them all under one folder and that folder is titled hell. I ca- Mine is called unhappiness. There you go. <laughs> And don't get me wrong, I love to get back to comments. I love to hear from people. But this whole kind of you have to post now and you have to do this. So then this can come here and you can hit the algorithm there. And it's like, you know what? Like last month, I just bought a motorcycle and rebuilt the thing and now I'm out riding. It's like sometimes you just want to live, you know, like I'll put out whatever I want to put out. And then if I really feel like I'm just starting to lose myself, you know, that's what I have to be careful of because you can and you can do it quickly, you know, and that was why I wanted to start the record with that because it's almost like we all have an addiction. Check yourself, you know, it may not be as bad as like the first step is admitting the problem, but you definitely want to call yourself out if you feel like you're doing things against your own will and no one's telling you to, right? That's a straight up addiction, you know, Um, and then Chance On You, which is my favorite song, because I think that beat is just like so cool. That was just a song where, I mean, I think we've all been in that situation where we have a friend and then we're kind of falling for them. And then it's like, do I give up the friendship and try for something else or do I keep it as is? But now that you've already thought that the as is has changed, so you might as well just go for it, you know? And then Crossroads is just literally that. It's it's a crossroads. So Derek and I went to Vegas and hung out where the devil met in the crossroads not alabama but we thought fire valley would be you know the best bet which was fun because when we got to fire valley um benny was shooting the video and Derek gets out of the car and i get out of the car and then one of the state troopers came by and looked at us and was like what the hell is this you know like what are you <laughs> this is a this is a motley crew you yes know? Well, this it's 5 30 in the morning you know and then he saw us take out like a cello and a violin and a bunch of film equipment and then they were so accommodating they said we'll just shut this road down you know you guys do your shoot and um, you know it's like just it's just amazing but that's kind of the record is it's literally a clean house and in all of my songs you'll hear accountability because that's what i feel like today people lack you know i mean you for every finger you point at someone you got three pointing back at you so you'll hear my mistakes throughout that entire record. And it's not necessarily that I'm ashamed of them, but if you own up to them, you can move from them and learn from them. You know, if you don't own up to them, you're just going to be stuck in a rut and you're going to slowly start to see people leave, you know? Yeah, um, that's actually really, really uh, profound. And kind of in the same vein of that, I find that even though sometimes it's difficult to apologize sincerely, I almost feel like it's unfair because after you've expressed being sorry to somebody, it's like the benefit you get from that is just so immense because you can also, once you've just seen yourself and seen your inequity a little bit, it's like, and and here I am still. I'm I'm still surviving. Like the world didn't come to an end because I witnessed my own imperfection and I stepped in it just like everybody else steps in it. Like yeah. it's okay. Absolutely. You know, and it's funny. 
the, the one the, one of the biggest things that pisses me off with social media is you have these influencers that are stunning. They're drop dead gorgeous. They spend mm. thousands of dollars on getting their teeth filed, Botox, makeup, makeup endorsements. They're making a million dollars a month, and then they talk about being bullied. Right? Someone bullied me, and then they show themselves crying in their Audi. Right? And then the next day they're just back to it, smiles, dancing on the pier, things like that. And what infuriates me is that downplays what those people actually getting bullied are going through because they don't get that tomorrow on the pier in the Audi smiling. They have to go back to that because I was bullied a ton when I was a kid. Oh, me too. Yeah. So it's like when that's happening and you live in that and you see these social influencers have a bad day and then they make it seem like that's their whole life. And then the next day they're right back to it. It infuriates me because those that are actually in that life and they will grow out of it, they will find their group that accepts them when they're older. You know, they don't know that they don't get that tomorrow. They have the same tomorrow as they did today, you know, and it's just infuriating to me that people just just downplay all that. I think the dance on the pier the next day is also probably fake. 100 percent. Right. It's it's all fake, actually. Right. Yeah. I so I yeah, I mean, I don't know what we're glorifying. You know, but that's why I love watching artists like Chris Dilley, you know, and um, like Bela, Dave Matthews. I mean, I love watching these guys just have fun, you know, because they've all been through a lot. They've all been through the ringer, but, you know, they're just having a blast on stage. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing is when I see the big, big boys and girls, the pros screw up and laugh, you know, because it's yep. like that, that wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> yeah, like whatever that was. I haven't done that in 30 years. So sorry about that, but I can't take it back, you know? And for any student listening, you screw up on stage. Who cares? Keep going. You yeah, know? I actually, I tell people that, like, I have students who get very nervous in lessons with me. And yeah. even though I'm, like, all keyed up and, like, you know, excited about everything, I'm a pretty, like, chill in terms of my expectations. Um, and I just said, you know, I could go in front of, everybody at Carnegie Hall in front of everybody I care about and everybody I'm afraid of. And I could miss every note in the Elgar cello concerto. And even though my personal feelings would be hurt, it is of actually zero significance. (laughs) It's like, in fact, I might go down in history. I might get famous for that. I might become an influencer (laughs) because I was the one who did that. So like putting your second finger down instead of three, it's all right. You're going to be just fine. That was best quote of Boston Conservatory. My whole four years there was I was playing the 4A quintet, right? And I don't know where I went, but I took a trip. I mean, everyone else on stage, they were definitely in 4A. I don't know where I went. I went somewhere. You went to 4B. It was it was a good yeah it was a good flight I don't, I don't know where I was but anyways I shifted probably half a page all with my third finger <laughs> and somehow I got away with it and well that's the thing you think you get away with it in and quotations so, yeah I was outside and Rhonda and for those of you that don't know Rhonda or Andrew Mark or Mihal Jijatu or Boris Kogan or Brent Wissick, Honor Bilsma. I mean, these are all like sensational cellists that you should look into because they all play very differently, but they all have like the same thing that you'll want. And anyways, Rhonda came out and she's she's short and she looked up at me and she just said, um, yeah, nice threes, you lunatic, and just walked away. <laughs> you know? And it was like, yeah, yeah, I didn't get away. I didn't get away with anything, like with nothing, you know? Yeah. But I didn't stop, you know? That's right. I mean, if you're going to pick a finger, I mean, I like three. I think you made the right choice. I'm three solidarity with you. Because you can't do two. It looks like you're giving everybody the bird too much. So um, it's like when you're playing chamber music, there's a moving force. You're on a freight train. If you stop the freight train, you're not slowing it down. You're derailing it. That's right. It's, It's virtually impossible to get that same experience back. You know, and you've set doubt now in your colleagues. Yeah. So everyone's now watching you and they're going to try to protect you and coddle you on stage. And that fire that you would have had is gone. Yeah, because then because you're in survival mode. Everybody's just trying to like, can we limp to the end here? 
Yeah, so it's like just just go for it and you screw up. Who cares? You know, yes. I mean, look at the government. What do they do well? <laughs> I know. You know? <laughs> like, yes, and they're no, you know? Yeah, nobody's ever died from note. So yeah. I think I think I think we're gonna be just fine. Um so just getting to the the end here um this is just me my personal nerdiness what are you listening to right now like kind of if we were to look at your spotify or apple music um what would kind of the last couple things you're listening to be uh i mean i can check i think this one was the collab with andreo before that it was stone temple pilots before that which album it's um come on here. I don't do albums for this one. This was a song purchase. Mm. Oh no, it's plush. Okay. Ah. Yeah, and then of course Interstate Love Song. Because you can't go wrong with that. Before that, it was Cyprian Katsaras playing Chopin Nocturne number two. And then before that was this track that I'm working on for this group in New York, but it's going to involve dancers and I might have to blow it out. It might turn into a musical theater thing. And oh my God. I always try to <clears throat> like throw in random things when I'm working because it just changes my ears. Yeah. You know, but it's kind of fun. My, my buddy, um, he's, he's a big, big deal for like tuning studios mm. and he two songs, uh, one of which is a Bonnie Ray song, and then the other of which is Justin Timberlake, the tuxedo. And those mm. are the two that like tune attractive. So I always tell people, even if you're not into it, like listen to the seventies, eighties music, because they were doing unbelievable stuff with production. You know? And like if you can tune your monitors to a sick analog record, like a Bonnie Ray record where she's all over the place, the digital will sound insane. If you tune everything to digital, the digital sounds like digital. Yeah, you know, but like if you can tune everything up to an analog quality, then, you know, you can start to get some breath into your tracks. Yeah, it's actually funny. Um, when I'm going in to record um, any kind of like poppy, dancey stuff, I used to write music for TV and it was always just sort of like, you know, loop oriented background music for a reality TV, N nothing too ponderous or big deal. But I remember um, I would always listen to level 42 oh, yeah. because like they were doing crazy things with yeah. recording analog, but using like, you know, transistor synths and things like that. And it just, yeah. they got I mean, it's a very like musical nerdy kind of thing to do, but like they, those sounds change your ears. They give you a different sense of what's possible. Well, for me, that's like a snarky puppy too. Oh yeah. Every, I got so many, so many good people in my life are like snarky puppy. I don't listen to them enough. Oh man. Yeah. Like, I mean, cool. Corey Henry, undoubtedly one of the best that ever has ever will be. Yep. But you get those guys into a room together. And again, it goes back to what I was saying before, though, about creativity and getting in the way and setting up the dam. You know, none of those guys would set up a dam when they're in the room together. They're just going to get through it, figure out what they want to do. You get the foundation. After that, you can worry about the wall switch, you know, mm -hmm. but you don't have the electrical up yet. You know, so it's like, just just get the pour the foundation. You know, don't care about the paint color. You don't even have walls. <laughs> just like, yeah. Work from the ground up. Don't start from the top and look down, you know, because you'll fall. You'll just fall, you know. And that's actually looping right back to where we started when we're talking about practice, right? That like start start with your foundation. A lot of students are like, this doesn't sound musical yet. I'm like, that's because you haven't learned the notes yet. Try learning the notes and yeah. then we'll go from there. Yeah. And the more honest you are with yourself, the less you'll have to pretend you're something you're not. You I know? love it. I love it. So um, let's uh, let's finish with um, a blurb. Um, so I feel like you're johnhannafin.com. Is that your website? And then um, tell us where to find your music. And if people want to get in contact with you or follow you on social media, give us all of those. So Instagram, all that stuff like TikTok and the Twitter is John R. Hannafin. And... 
for my website, johnhannafin.com, and for YouTube, it's just John Hannafin. Pretty much, if you just type in John Hannafin Clean House, have at it. You know, excellent. Don't don't worry about buying it. You know, you can just stream it. I mean, we're. I think all of us are to the point now where we'd just rather put it out and have people hear it than have them hold back from hearing it because they feel like they have to buy it. You know, we make this stuff so people can listen. You know, so however you want to listen, listen. You know, is it nice to support artists? Sure. But who cares? <laughs> you got to pick and choose your battles. <laughs> Absolutely. And it sounds like your battle is going to be um, installing plumbing. Well, yeah, no, that, that bathroom's done. Yeah, that was, that was, yeah, that was last week. Yeah, so that, that, one, that one came out good. Today, though, I have to replace a clutch cable. I have to figure this out for Andreo, and then I got to get to my third movement of my cello concerto. So... All in a day's work for John Hannafin. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, really.